it's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get right through now, it. the COVID-19 vaccine are available to millions of Americans and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hugger and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people, and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. we got a good one in store coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. We're going to talk with uh, Tanya Hester about her new book, uh, Wallet Activism, How to Use Every Dollar You Spend, Earn, and Save as a Force for Change. In the middle hour, the second hour of our three-hour tour, we're going to talk with uh, a self-described accidental author. Mariel Schindler tells the story uh, of the lost Cafe Schindler, One Family, Two Wars, and the Search for Truth about her uh, family's uh, business and uh, about what was going on uh, at the end of World War One through World War Two in uh, Innsbruck, Austria, with regard to uh, the treatment of Jews, etc. But first, a very interesting uh, book uh, comes, uh, it's uh, a memoir, I believe, it's called Matchsticks, an education in black and white by Fred Ang, and uh, Fred joins me by phone. Hi, Fred. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Tom. How are you? I'm doing just fine, thanks. This book is about your experience uh, 
as the first white student to attend an all-black college. How did that come about? Did you lose a bet? <laughs> yeah, I'm being facetious. Like I'm being facetious, of course. Uh, of course you are. Yeah, what happened, Tom, is uh, I was going to University of Maryland main campus uh, back some time ago in the 60s, and so I decided that I didn't want to go there anymore because I couldn't afford it. And in the meantime, I got married, and I was living in a town called Salisbury, Maryland, right on the eastern shore of Maryland, which at the time was the, the hotbed of racial divide. And uh, all of a sudden, I said... This, this was when, Fred? About 1961? 60, 1961, right. And so... I said, I've got to go back to college because my mother berated me because at the time we had two children and I had a part-time job teaching physical education at a, at a Catholic elementary school and I was playing in a band and I was going nowhere and all of a sudden I'm listening to the radio and it talked about the school that was about 20 miles away from where I lived, and it was an all-black college, and they were offering a physical education program, and I'm thinking, you got to be kidding me. And so all of a sudden, I said, I'm going to go. And my wife said, you realize it's an all-black college, they're not going to let you in there, and if you get in there, it's going to be a big problem for you because of all the racial riots going on, especially at the eastern shore of Maryland. And so I registered, and the rest is history from it, because I went there. I never had a problem at all, even though, like I say, right in the eastern shore of Maryland, there were riots going on, burning buildings and whatnot. And here I am, a, a white student in an all-black college. But it was, it was such a great experience experience and a learning experience to know that you know anybody can get along with anybody and so that's how it happened were did you feel like an outsider were you were you often made to feel like you didn't belong no you know and that's a funny thing of course when i rode into the campus the first day you can imagine anybody can imagine going into a campus and you're white. I describe it in the book, Matchsticks, of, of being in a grocery store and say that you're a black person and all the people in the store are white. How would you feel if you're that black person? And so all of a sudden it was a reverse for me. Here I am driving into the campus. Everywhere I looked, there was a black student. And you feel intimidated and scared and wondering, did I make the wrong decision? But as fate would allow, when I was registering, I saw this big black football player. I didn't know he was a football player then, but he certainly looked like he could have been. And he defended me right from the very beginning and kind of took me under his wing. And I played golf uh, when I was at the University of Maryland main campus, uh, not on the team, I just played, and he happened to be also a golfer, and we joined the team, and 
we traveled throughout the mid-Atlantic to Baltimore, Washington, but we would have to stop in. Can you imagine four black guys and one white guy in a car in the 60s in the riot-torn area and pulling into a white gasoline station and people looking at us and, you know, it was very scary. Uh, and uh, so, but I survived it all. And, and I learned so much about, you know, relationships and whatnot. And you hear it a million times that, you know, color doesn't mean anything. And it really doesn't after you, the, the experience I went through. Did did it give you some insights into um, some of the differences between black people and white people? And I'm thinking just culturally. I, I remember joking with a with a black friend about liking beef well done, and and he said, "Well, it's a cultural thing." And um, and, and so I just wonder. In your experience, um, did you interact with with other students aside from this friend that that sort of looked out for you? I'm assuming you're talking about Bob Taylor. Yeah, uh, yeah, and Bob Taylor was, uh, as I said, he eventually played for the New York Giants and whatnot. But to answer your question, Tom, yeah, of course. I mean, I would be in class and we would, you know, converse with everybody and you know it's like anything else after a while nobody recognizes whether what color you are or who you are or where you came from they just care whether you're a nice person and whether you're whether you're a bigoted person or whatnot that shows through but culturally do did i see anything that was different sure i did i mean you know everybody has their own different culture uh it, it, it not even because of whether you're white, black, Asian, whatever. Uh, we all have our different cultures. And on the eastern shore of Maryland, when I grew up, I mean, uh, everybody basically was a racist. I mean, that's you were born that. That's the way you thought and talked. Uh, you walked down the street. I, I'll give you a good example. I used to work on the beach. I was 10 years old. And I worked on the beach in Ocean City, Maryland, which was 20 miles away from where we lived. And I sold papers on the boardwalk. And one morning, I'm walking down the boardwalk, and I hear all this commotion and say, what's going on? And I walk closer, and here were a crowd of people around a black lady who had two white kids in her hands, who was babysitting them on the beach. And the police came down and removed her from the beach because there was a rule and a law. The black people weren't allowed on the beach. And you think of that today, and you look around, and you can see the changes that have been made and the attitudes that have changed in, in regard to that. And there's a lot of other stories that I went through to see, you know, what went on uh when I was in high school, there were uh, one black guy worked uh, in the area where we were, and I became friends with him. We went to a movie one day, and 
we were sitting downstairs and the manager of the movie came in and told him that he would have to go upstairs because the blacks couldn't sit down with white people and and it, all of us left in you know protest of that but you know that those kind of things went on and, it, and the funny thing tom is today you tell this story to to young kids and people in their 30s 40s it's hard for them to comprehend when you tell them that <laughs> that black people couldn't drink from the same you know water fountains they could use the, the same restrooms they couldn't sit in the in a restaurant and you know, it's it's kind of uh, strange now today, uh, even though we still have a multitude of problems with black and white relationships. Well, when you started going to this all-black college, Fred, in 1961, that predates what we think of as the the civil rights movement in the uh, in the 60s, and I want to talk about that a little bit, but. Before we do, um, I have to ask you, I, I'm, I'm wrestling with the image of a big black football player playing golf. Was that, right. was that pretty unusual in 1961? Very much so, uh, because back at that time, uh, I don't know how familiar you are with professional golf, but blacks weren't allowed to play in the, in the, in the golf tournaments uh, at that time. Well, they wouldn't and, have been allowed at most golf clubs or golf courses. Right. And, and uh, so when the Civil Rights Act came, then they gave, that opened up that nobody could deny on public courses for blacks to go out to play. But Bob Taylor had grown up in Columbia, South Carolina, and he had worked at a golf course, uh, you know, picking up golf balls and doing whatever needed to be done. And he learned to play golf that way. And he became unbelievably good golfer. Uh, as a matter of fact, when they had the NFL, uh, every year would have a championship of all the NFL players playing golf before the season and he won that and so yeah i mean it was it was really strange that he and i hooked up and and got to play together because we would you know just joke around all the time uh one time we went to i tell a story in the book too about uh, we, we were playing practicing in a at a white golf course not too far from the campus, uh, and when we went out to play, uh, none of the white people liked the idea, first of all, of me going to the college, and second of all, from me being out there on the golf course playing with Bob, and so consequently we're playing, and the maintenance guy who rode around in his tractor pulls up, and because of they have a sand trap, and the rules are basically you rake it out and smooth it out after you head out of there. And Bob hadn't done that, and he pulls his truck Fred, up. Fred, says, I hate to interrupt, but we'll have to uh, 
take a break here. Can you stick around? I know out there, everybody. It's me, sure. Tigger. All right, we'll be right back. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Lions. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Dr. Comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. 
and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. We uh, continue my conversation with uh, uh, talking about, um, well, a unique story of racism, friendship, and golf as told in the uh, book Matchsticks, An Education in Black and White by Fred Eng. Um, Fred, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. Oh, not a problem. Done it. Uh, Fred, just before the break, we were talking about I I had uh, made the comment that it was hard for me to picture a big black football player playing golf, but um, and 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 you started talking about the fact that um, your friend Bob Taylor that you went to school with, and and I'll remind listeners or or maybe tell listeners that are just tuning in that um, you were the only you were the first white student at an all-black college and uh, you were befriended uh, early on when you were registering actually by someone who kind of looked out for you uh, uh, became a, a longtime friend Bob Taylor um, and and you were talking about how he had learned to play golf um, doing you know basically odd jobs at golf courses uh, picking up golf balls and stuff and and uh, and then you mentioned the Civil Rights Act, which uh, you started, I think, college in 1961, and Civil Rights Act Civil Rights Act wasn't passed until '64. Um, you want to pick up where we where we left off when we went to break, Fred? Or? Yeah, well, uh, what I was mentioning, and make it quick. Uh, Bob and I were playing on the course and. He had violated one of the the rules of golf where you're supposed to rake the bunker, the sand trap, and the maintenance guy came by and looked at him and said, boy, let me tell you, up here we rake those sand traps. And I looked at Bob and I thought, the one thing that you never do is you never call a black boy, boy. And he says, Fred, as we walked away, because I thought he could literally have torn this guy apart. And he said, Fred, now you know what it's like to grow up in the South. And that's all he had to say. And, and uh, you know, it just was a memorable experience for me to hear that from him. But, uh, yeah, he was such a great golfer. And, and he ended up playing for the NFL, and, and I'm still, you know, of course, in those days, there there was no Tiger Woods, and the idea of a black person playing golf, when did it start being legal for black people to play in, in on public courses, or, and were there black-only courses? Uh, there were. Uh, one of them in Washington, D.C. was uh, a, an all-black golf course, and and uh, we played on that course. And it was kind of strange for me playing there, but you, you'd mentioned before that with the Civil Rights Act in 1964, 
that that hadn't arrived yet but there were places that that allowed whites or blacks to play on uh, you know golf courses but it was a designated time of day so when we played uh matches like morgan state college we played in the afternoon and uh so it was it was a kind of very very strange experience but you know you, you do what you have to do i didn't I didn't go to an all-black college to make a statement or try to prove anything. I just wanted to get an education. And well, they had a program you were interested in, a sports program you were interested in in taking advantage of, and it was close by, right? Right. Yeah. Well, my background uh, when I was in high school, I was a, a wrestler, and uh, I went to the University of Maryland, and I was on the wrestling team in my first two years, and that's when I decided that I had enough and dropped out, and and I started playing golf. And uh, but it was kind of interesting that going to Maryland State College and and having a golf team there was amazing in itself because we only had four or five guys probably in the whole school that knew how to play golf because they never you know grew up like white, you know, people and getting on golf courses. Uh, so it was it was really a unique experience and obviously one that I've never forgotten. And and the Black College was Maryland State? Maryland, Maryland State College, right, which is now the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. And, and you know, interesting, Tom, that when, when I went there, uh, this is interesting because I had credits for the first two years I went to the university main campus. Uh, I didn't know that it was a division of the University of Maryland at the time, and they never announced it or anything. And until I got there, and when I registered, they told me that I could get the credits that I had at the main college campus and I was dumbfounded. I couldn't I couldn't wait to tell my wife when I went back that I already had a lot of my credits and it wouldn't take me four years to finish. The middle sixties was a, a really tough time in race relations, not that we haven't experienced some of that more recently, but but it was an especially tough time. You know, and I'm thinking about Selma and, you know, some of the big events from that period of time. And what were you thinking when you turned on the evening news and, and saw, you know, these these big riots and, and police uh, using fire hoses and smoke bombs and all kinds of, you know, pretty brutal crowd control techniques? What was going through your mind? You know, it's it's strange. It's a good question, Tom. That it's strange to think that at that time you were so focused on your need to get an education and and where or to move ahead. It didn't phase me. I mean, you're right. I mean, there were riots all around us, and particularly in a in a town, uh, Cambridge, Maryland, and we had to ride through Cambridge on our way to go to Baltimore and 
at the same time that we're riding through, riots are going on in that in that town, and it didn't fear me. I mean, yeah, it feared me when we pulled into a gas station and there are three or four white guys there that you know they looked over at the car and saw me and 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 I I had to think real quick because they had a lot of a lot of mean looks in their face coming over to the car and the the gas station guy says what are you doing in the car with these black guys and I said well I'm driving them to Baltimore because they're going to be working up there whatever (laughs) so you know it's that kind of thing that you had to do then or or you'd been in big trouble but you know it just it like I say it's something that you do and I, I didn't do it to prove anything I just did it because I I had to do it. When, Fred, you said something during the last segment that that made my ears perk up a little bit when you said, you know, back at the time, just, just before you started to go to this college, you said that everybody was racist in those days. And, you know, I, I know you've referred to your parents as racist. You said... Uh, you know, that was just the way everybody was and the way they were brought up and, and so on. Um, did you think of yourself as, as a racist, and, and how did that change because of your experience at Maryland State? Yeah, you know, uh, it, it's difficult to kind of think of how I would refer to myself as a racist, but let me put it this way. In, in racism, in all the experience I've had throughout my life, it being very young, people were just naturally racist. Like I mentioned, that that uh, I'll give you an example. We used to have a, a, a black lady who delivered eggs to our house. We lived out in the country. And my mother would never let her come in the house. I never dreamt of letting her do it. But... She would have been classified as a racist today. Was she a racist with mean-spirited hatred of, of blacks? No. But would she be classified as a racist? Yes, she would. And so that's the way that most, I shouldn't say most, I'd say all white people where we lived uh, were racist because nobody I knew that stood up and said, this is bad, this is not fair, uh, they just went along with it because that was a way of life then. And so when I went to Maryland State College, uh, people have asked in other interviews, and say, how did you come up with the name Matchsticks for this book? Well, when I had registered for school, uh, we used to go to my mother's for dinner on Sunday, and my wife and I had a two little kids that we had and we walked in on Sunday and my mother hands me a pack of matches and I said what is this for because I didn't smoke and she said well open it and I opened it and all of the tips of the matches were burned out and there was one white tip in the match so you get the picture and I looked and I didn't know whether to laugh or... Well, that image is on the cover of the book. 
Yeah. And and so that'll kind of tell you that, you know, <laughs> the idea of me going to an old black college for all the people that I knew, it kind of raised the rise of saying, oh, what, what is he trying to do? Or, you know, all kinds of names that I encountered. But, you know, that that's like I say, that's the way it is. So the, the people that way today, of course, they are to, you know, that's where you have Black Lives Matter and all the different mean, ugly things that we see that still go on. And I'll tell you another story, Tom, that, that was one that I've never forgotten. Because you asked before if I ever conversed with all the other black students. And I remember one day we were sitting out in front of class, and there were about six or seven of us, and we just got into the conversation about racism. And one of the guys said, he said, you know what, someday none of this is going to be matter at all because all of us are going to be gray anyway. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And and, and you know what, back then you would think, oh, wow, I wonder what he means by that. I I got an idea, but now you'd look around today (laughs) And you think he wasn't very far off that to know that, you know, with the way life evolves and the world revolves around us, things are changing, things are more acceptable. And, it, and yes, someday we'll all be gray and nobody will worry about it. Well, you know, in the um, in the midst of of all of the changes that have occurred, um there still is a sense of very um, intense racial division. And I know a lot of people who don't think of themselves as racist, but a new concept has sort of entered the the lexicon. Um, The notion that you're that not being racist isn't good enough. You have to be anti-racist. What do you think when you hear some of the rhetoric that is happening now? Well, you know, I mean, from the experience that I had, if if everybody had gone through the experience that I had of being a white person on a all-black college campus and how it changed me to be thinking... This is not, you know, we're all we're all the same, and we're all after the same thing, and that's survival. And what way we look at it from one to another doesn't matter. It matters that we are all equal. So when I see what is happening around, you know, with Black Lives Matter or whatnot, I know it sounds strange to say this, but it's like saying, uh, does water matter? You know, of course it matters. And with what we are doing today, you know, for people to speak up and be anti-racist, as you see on football helmets, of course we should be anti-racist and anti-racism. I mean, that's the only way that people are going to ever get along together. And events happen, but but beneath it all is is the one thing that, that, I learned and have seen with people and that 
racism is kind of like a virus. It's it's it, with people that, in particular, where I grew up in on the eastern shore of Maryland, it, it's a virus of racism existing that lives within people, and it can it can be not seen and whatnot, but it lives in people, and for them to get rid of that, it takes a traumatic experience like I had of saying it doesn't matter because I went to an all-black college and when I finished I had friends or like with Bob Taylor were uh, just a great wonderful friend that I had and so you know it's hard for me to describe any of that because I never I never went there to school to try to prove anything or try to make people be anti-racist. I just went because I needed to go. Um, what did you think, Fred, when Barack Obama got elected president and was ultimately sworn in? I thought it was the greatest thing of all. I think, I think it was kind of, when I looked at it and thought, you know, all of the, all of the things that I had heard when I was a white person going to a black college and over the years then seeing the attitudes develop and to think that when Barack Obama got elected, actually I couldn't believe that it would happen, but I was elated. I, I mean, I just, I, I just showed that, that things are changing. I remember thinking at the time, Fred, that you know, almost breathing a sigh of relief that that all of this tumultuousness around race would dissipate and and just fall into history. But it seemed to get worse. Um, did you get that sense as well? And and what did you think when you saw racism actually on the rise? after the first black man was elected president of the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, I'll go back to what I mentioned before about a virus, that all of a sudden the virus isn't there for a while, and but it still lives within you. And amazingly, amazingly, the same people that rose up after Barack Obama got elected president, many of them changed back to that virus that, that appeared again and revolted against it in, in a lot of ways. And I don't know if that makes any sense to anybody, but the, the point is, is that, you know, we have in our society people that are... are racist of course but to a very awful awful degree and will spread that hatred uh and others join in i mean it it, it it's obviously a very complicated issue in our society but i just see it as being when barack obama was elected president i just saw a lot of great hope that it was out there now things are changing and sure there were people revolted to that and but i think that more and more we're seeing that 
you know, racism is on a decline. Fred, did did the fact that you played stand-up bass, that that you had some background as a musician, did it, um, did that maybe change or alter the way you might react to being in an all-black college as opposed to some other white kid wanting to study sports? Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that, that that I did play in a band and played for 15 years and kind of helped me survive financially getting through all of it. But interestingly, Tom, that in a band that I played with many times was with black musicians. And it's the same thing that if you ask any white musician that played with black musicians and and ask them if there was any hatred or you know racist attitude toward each other they'd laugh because in music it <laughs> binds you together and 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 it it was kind of the same thing that that I learned uh, going to an all black college so it just you know, it's just who you are and what you want to accept in your life. But if you want to live with hatred, you're gonna you're gonna die with hatred and and not enjoy the the, the trip. Well, I got to tell you, Fred, this is a, a fascinating story. Again, the book is uh, a unique story of racism, friendship, and golf. It's called Matchsticks: An Education in Black and White by Fred Ang. Fred, um, we're we're almost out of time, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you, the book, and and your work, past, present, and future. Um, Fred, do you have a website? Uh, yes, the, the website is the organization that I founded, which is a whole story in itself, but it's the National Alliance for Youth Sports, and the website is nays.org, and it is about bringing sports for children worldwide, and one of the reasons that... Uh, I know you're running out of time, but I'll make it real quick, that what I learned from going to an all-black college and whatnot was so many things were denied to blacks, and with not only blacks, but children that haven't the privilege and opportunity, and created the National Alliance for Youth Sports to help coaches and parents, administrators make sports fun and positive for kids and today i'm happy with it the fact that 13 countries around the world have initiated our program to help bring sports to those countries and help children learn and develop the values of sports into their lives well fred thank you so much for spending time with me this morning and sharing some of your experiences uh, with me and the listeners and of course in your book, Matchsticks, An Education in Black and White by Fred Eng. Fred, uh, thanks again, and keep up the good work. Well, thanks for having me, Tom. All right, take care. And with that, we're going to take a short break. If you're listening to us at uh, 92.1 LPFM, Our Voices Radio 
in Flint. They are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my friend Paul Herring. We're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Start your weekend early with the Tom Sumner Program every Friday live at 11. We turn the spotlight on the world of arts and entertainment featuring artists from music, TV, and the movies. Catch everything from the rich local talent pool in and around Flint and Genesee County to up-and-coming stars of stage and screen, plus legends from New York and Hollywood. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is... This is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Start your weekend right. Go to 11 Fridays on the Tom Sumner Program. Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the bath. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Imagine a journey down a picturesque riverway. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. 
We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Summer Program.com Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Fine, fine welcome. And it's certainly very gratifying to know that you feel this way and that you people have accepted my being able to sub for Johnny this week because it seems to have caused quite a bit of difficulty around here at NBC. Uh, earlier this evening, I was in Johnny's dressing room and one of the wardrobe mistresses walked by and she sticks her head in the door, she sees me and she says, what are you doing in Johnny Carson's dressing room? <laughs> Said if he catch you in here, this is the last time you're gonna be on this show. <laughs> So I'm very glad. <laughs> I'm very glad that you feel that. We'll, we will, during the course of the week, find some way to overcome her problem and firmly convince her that NBC, without a doubt, has established within everyone's mind that it is the full color network. <laughs> it's fun for me. It's this this entire week is going to be fun. I've looked forward to it, and uh, in fact, to stand here and act so cool. I'm excited. I'm not nervous, I'm excited. In the dressing room, I felt good. I was thinking, you know, just different ways of expressing the enthusiasm, and I was saying to myself, Woo! <laughs> well, it's made me think back. This is a long way from where I started. You know, I used to work in a drive-in movie. That's right, it was really rough. But it was fun. It was a hard job, but it was fun. I used to go around and shine the light in the car, tell people when the picture's over. <laughs> I got $25 a week and all I could see. <laughs> I'd walk around and say, the picture's over, the picture's over. <laughs> I tried a lot of things, I tried a lot of things. I feel that I'm prepared to assume the responsibility for, well, this job. This is, well, this job is like, uh, I feel like this job is like being at a weenie roast with me being the weenie. <laughs> I just threw that in, you know? <laughs> yes, yes. I, I tried a lot of things. You know, coming along, I, uh, during my younger years, I tried, uh, I operated my own business. It was a lemonade stand, you know? And uh, it was doing pretty good. It, the way it went is I had a big sign over the lemonade stand called Flip's Lemonade, all you can drink for a dime. Well, that was great, and it was going along pretty well. But then you always run into a wise guy, you know? One day a guy comes up to Stan, he says, uh, is this lemonade as good as everybody says it is? And I said, you better believe it. This lemonade is just as good as what your mother used to make. And the guy said, mmm, that gotta be some very good lemonade. <laughs> I said, and in addition to that, I give you all you can drink for a dime. You can't beat that. I said, let me tell you how I fix this lemonade. I put extra sugar in the glass. So that when you turn the glass up to drink it, the lemonade starts swirling around and that makes the sugar swirl and lemonade gets sweeter as you go down, you know, as it goes down. 
makes it taste better. And uh, then the lemonade is very cold. I put extra ice in the pitcher, and then I pack the pitcher in the ice. I said, yeah, that's all right. He said, uh, give me a glass. So I gave him a glass, and uh, he said, I'll have another glass. I said, well, that'll be another dime. He said, now, hold on. He said, the sign says all you can drink for a dime. I said, but you had a glass, didn't you? And I said, yes. I said, well, that's all you can drink for a dime. <laughs> People caught on to that pretty quick, so I, I kind of cut the lemonade business to loose, and I've worked toward tonight. And uh, during the course, now let me see, things are going to be a little different with Johnny not here. The whole purpose of the show is fun. We're going to try to have as much fun, you know, but other things will be different, such as uh, during the course of my opening spot, I'll eliminate Johnny's genuine, authentic golf swing. We won't have that this week. No, I wouldn't infringe upon the man's right to open, you know, that, that's not... That's his swing. You know, I swing another way. I got my own way of <laughs> But uh, if, if Johnny's looking in tonight, I was thinking of some way. I don't play golf myself. Well, the ball is too small. If the ball was a little larger, I'd play. Uh, but in the elevator at the hotel I'm staying at, coming up on the elevator, I heard two guys discussing the game, and I thought it was a pretty amusing conversation. One fellow says to the other, he said, uh, say, George, he said, how's your golf game coming? George said, it's all right. It's all right. Well, I said, you should be pretty good. You and Freddie playing every other day. George said, look, said, don't mention Freddie's name to me. I said, I don't want to talk about Freddie. You understand? So don't bring his name up to me. Well, I said, but you and Freddie are such good friends. You guys play golf every other day. George said, well, not anymore. I said, well, what happened? I said, look, I said, do you want to play with a guy who cheats on the score? Want to play with a guy who cheats? A guy who, if he makes a hole in one, he's going to take off two? Do you want to play with you want to play with a guy who, who steals your clubs while you're watching the ball because somebody's already got your bag? <laughs> so do you want to play with a guy who run through the clubhouse yelling burn baby burn? <laughs> do you want to play with a guy like that? And the fellow said, "Heck no." He said, "Well, neither do Freddie." <laughs> This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Come on, pretty lady Tell me what you gonna do 
besides the fact. Program, don't you know? Go on, go on, get out of here. <laughs> 